Chapter fourteen of In His Steps. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Magdalena Cook. In His Steps by Charles Monroe Sheldon. Chapter fourteen. But more than any other feeling at this meeting rose the tide of fellowship for one another. Maxwell watched it, trembling for its climax, which he knew was not yet reached. When it was, where would it lead them? He did not know, but he was not unduly alarmed about it. Only he watched with growing wonder the results of that simple promise as it was being obeyed in these various lives. Those results were already being felt all over the city. Who could measure their influence at the end of a year? One practical form of this fellowship showed itself in the assurances which Edward Norman received of support for his paper. There was a general flocking toward him when the meeting closed, and the response to his appeal for help from the Christian disciples in Raymond was fully understood by this little company. The value of such a paper in the homes and in behalf of good citizenship, especially at the present crisis in the city, could not be measured. It remained to be seen what could be done now that the paper was endowed so liberally. But it still was true, as Norman insisted, that money alone could not make the paper a power. It must receive the support and sympathy of the Christians in Raymond before it could be counted as one of the great forces of the city. The week that followed this Sunday meeting was one of great excitement in Raymond. It was the week of the election. President Marsh, true to his promise, took up his cross and bore it manfully, but with shuddering, with groans and even tears, for his deepest conviction was touched and he tore himself out of the scholarly seclusion of years with the pain and anguish that cost him more than anything he had ever done as a follower of Christ. With him were a few of the colleague professors who had made the pledge in the first church. Their experience and suffering were the same as his, for their isolation from all the duties of citizenship had been the same. The same was also true of Henry Maxwell, who plunged into the horror of his fight against whisky and its allies, with a sickening dread of each day's new encounter with it, for never before had he borne such a cross. He staggered under it, and in the brief intervals when he came in from the work and sought the quiet of his study for rest, the sweat broke out on his forehead, and he felt the actual terror of one who marches into unseen, unknown horrors. Looking back on it afterwards, he was amazed at his experience. He was not a coward, but he felt the dread that any man of his habits feels when confronted suddenly with a duty which carries with it the doing of certain things so unfamiliar that the actual details connected with it betray his ignorance and fill him with the shame of humiliation. When Saturday, the election day, came, the excitement rose to its height. An attempt was made to close all the saloons. It was only partly successful. There was a great deal of drinking going on all day. The rectangle boiled and heaved and cursed and turned its worst side out to the gaze of the city. Gray had continued his meetings during the week, and the results had been even greater than he had dared to hope. When Saturday came, it seemed to him that the crisis in his work had been reached. The Holy Spirit and the Satan of Rum seemed to rouse up to a desperate conflict. The more interest in the meetings, the more ferocity and vileness outside. The saloon men no longer concealed their feelings. Open threats of violence were made. Once during the week, Gray and his little company of helpers were assailed with missiles of various kinds as they left the tent late at night. The police sent down a special force, and Virginia and Rachel were always under the protection of either Roland or Dr. West. Rachel's power in song had not diminished. 
Rather, with each night, it seemed to add to the intensity and reality of the spirit's presence. Gray had at first hesitated about having a meeting that night, but he had a simple rule of action, and was always guided by it. The spirit seemed to lead him to continue the meeting, and so Saturday night he went on as usual. The excitement all over the city had reached its climax when the polls closed at six o'clock. Never before had there been such a contest in Raymond. The issue of license or no license had never been an issue under such circumstances. Never before had such elements in the city been arrayed against each other. It was an unheard-of thing that the president of Lincoln College, the pastor of the First Church, the dean of the cathedral, the professional men living in fine houses on the boulevard, should come personally into the wards, and by their presence and their example represent the Christian conscience of the place. The ward politicians were astonished at the sight. However, their astonishment did not prevent their activity. The fight grew hotter every hour, and when six o'clock came, neither side could have guessed at the result with any certainty. Everyone agreed that never before had there been such an election in Raymond, and both sides awaited the announcement of the result with the greatest interest. It was after ten o'clock when the meeting at the tent was closed. It had been a strange and in some respects a remarkable meeting. Maxwell had come down again at Gray's request. He was completely worn out by the day's work, but the appeal from Gray came to him in such a form that he did not feel able to resist it. President Marsh was also present. He had never been to the rectangle, and his curiosity was aroused from what he had noticed of the influence of the evangelists in the worst part of the city. Dr. West and Roland had come with Rachel and Virginia, and Laureen, who still stayed with Virginia, was present near the organ, in a right mind, sober, with a humility and dread of herself that kept her as close to Virginia as a faithful dog. All through the service she sat with bowed head, weeping a part of the time, sobbing when Rachel sang the song, I Was a Wandering Sheep, clinging with almost visible, tangible yearning to the one hope she had found listening to prayer and appeal and confession all about her, like one who was part of a new creation, yet fearful of her right to share in it fully. The tent had been crowded, as on some other occasions there was more or less disturbance on the outside. This had increased as the night advanced, and Gray thought it wise not to prolong the service. Once in a while a shout as from a large crowd swept into the tent, the returns from the election were beginning to come in, and the rectangle had emptied every lodging-house, den, and hovel into the streets. In spite of these distractions, Rachel's singing kept the crowd in the tent from dissolving. There were a dozen or more conversions. Finally the people became restless and grey closed the service, remaining a little while with the converts. Rachel, Virginia, Laureen, Roland, and the doctor, President Marsh, Mr. Maxwell, and Dr. West went out together intending to go down to the usual waiting-place for their car. As they came out of the tent, they were at once aware that the rectangle was trembling on the verge of a drunken riot, and as they pushed through the gathering mobs in the narrow streets, they began to realise that they themselves were the objects of great attention. "'There he is, the bloke in the tall hat. He's the leader!' shouted a rough voice. President Marsh, with his erect, commanding figure, was conspicuous in the little company. "'How has the election gone?' It is too early to know the result yet, isn't it? He asked the question aloud, and a man answered. They say second and third wards have gone almost solid for no license. If that is so, the whisky men have been beaten. Thank God! I hope it is true, exclaimed Maxwell. 
Marsh, we are in danger here. Do you realise our situation? We ought to get the ladies to a place of safety. That is true, said Marsh gravely. At that moment a shower of stones and other missiles fell over them. The narrow street and sidewalk in front of them was completely choked with the worst elements of the rectangle. This looks serious, said Maxwell. With Marsh and Roland and Dr. West, he started to go forward through a small opening. Virginia, Rachel and Laureen followed close and sheltered by the men, who now realised something of their danger. The rectangle was drunk and enraged. It saw in Marsh and Maxwell two of the leaders in the election contest, which had perhaps robbed them of their beloved saloon. "'Down with the aristocrats!' shouted a shrill voice, more like a woman's than a man's. A shower of mud and stones followed. Rachel remembered afterwards that Roland jumped directly in front of her and received on his head and chest a number of blows that would probably have struck her if he had not shielded her from them. And just then, before the police reached them, Laureen darted forward in front of Virginia and pushed her aside, looking up and screaming. It was so sudden that no one had time to catch the face of the one who did it. But out of the upper window of a room, over the very saloon where Laureen had come out a week before, someone had thrown a heavy bottle. It struck Laureen on the head and she fell to the ground. Virginia turned and instantly kneeled down by her. The police officers by that time had reached the little company. President Marsh raised his arm and shouted over the howl that was beginning to rise from the wild beast in the mob. Stop! You've killed a woman! The announcement partly sobered the crowd. Is it true? Maxwell asked it, as Dr. West kneeled on the other side of Lorraine, supporting her. She's dying, said Dr. West briefly. Lorraine opened her eyes and smiled at Virginia, who wiped the blood from her face and then bent over and kissed her. Lorraine smiled again, and the next minute her soul was in paradise. End of chapter 14